Uh, we'll begin, by the way, with the authority of Scripture and the significance of Scripture uh, uh, and its importance and how that really is foundational to our belief. So uh, we'll, we'll begin with that uh, in January, probably mid-January uh, at some point, but uh, I don't have those dates in mind right now. So in preparation for our Family Fall kickoff and our new program year, um, I, I've been talking with a number of people uh, as we gear up for that, and uh, I ran across this book. <laughs> I have this uh, former senior pastor that I worked for in Lancaster, Ohio. I've told you about him before. His name is Dr. Riedel. Uh, very influential in my life in terms of ministry and so many of the things that I do. Uh, he, uh, the Lord really directed him to teach and mentor me in many good ways. But he's in his late 80s now, I think, and still a voracious reader. And so every month he sends me eight to 10 books. And uh, I can't tell you how many thousands of dollars of books that he sent to me. And so one of the books, and it's, you know, this is all in God's timing, right? Uh, if any of you think that there's a coincidence with these kinds of things, it's just, it's a myth. It just doesn't exist. Um, but he sent me this book, and I read the first chapter. As I was thinking about all this other stuff that I've been talking with the elders about and all these kinds of things, and this is entitled Recalibrate Your Life. And so I found that the, just the introduction to be really, really good, very, very helpful. And, uh, and so I'm going to continue to read this, and I don't know how much more I will take from that, but I did steal the title for this series, so I will say that unabashedly. Uh, the title does not belong to me. I'm stealing it, but I'm telling you I'm stealing it, so it's not, it's not, uh, not uh, uh, what's that called? Uh, yeah, plagiarism. So anyway, I'm giving due credit. But this is written by Kenneth Boa and Jenny Abel, and so... Um, there's some stuff here that I'm going to be using, but I love the title, and I think it's very applicable to what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Here are some of the things that they said that I think will help us get started in terms of what we're going to be addressing. During these pivotal times, and these are pivotal times in so many different ways, during these pivotal times, it is important to recalibrate, to consciously process where we have been, where we are now, and where we are headed. Anybody that I've known who, who has done anything significant in their life is a person who spends time recalibrating their life and their work, re-examining where they have been, where they are now, and where they are headed. I think that's a very healthy thing, both in our faith, in our life at large, in our work, all of those kinds of things. It's important to do that, that, that examination and then that recalibration. So at the heart of recalibrating is seeing our lives from an eternal perspective. Most people who recalibrate see their lives from a temporal perspective, from an earthly perspective, from a fleshly perspective. But at the heart of recalibrating, as we look at our life, as we are asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us, Holy Spirit, God, what is it about my life 
that I need to change, that I need to improve upon. I was here, now I'm here, where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to be? We are recalibrating then for a specific purpose, to gain, maintain, or regain an eternal Christ-centered perspective and to apply that Christ-centered perspective in every component of our lives. And this is the great falling down of Christians as a whole, that they live these incredibly compartmentalized lives. I think Rocky was telling me that uh, he, a person that he knew at work who was very, very involved in their church, an elder, uh, respected, that when he passed away and the people of faith came to his funeral, the people at work never knew that he went to church. Now, I don't know how that's possible unless you intentionally don't allow that to be possible. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, how is it not possible to see that? Everywhere you go and with every person that you meet. So, I think, now obviously, right, you know, we're in certain places and we have to mind how we speak and talk and those kinds of things because, you know, you may not be allowed to talk. You may not be allowed to have certain things on your desk or on your wall or whatever, but still, if you are Christ-centered, Christ can't help but leak out wherever you are, wherever you go. Through our outer light, no, so then, then, then I ran across this text tonight, and forgive me, I, uh, I forgot to include the, the reference here, but you, you'll be familiar with this text. Though our outer life is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I think Paul talks about that in Corinthians. It's towards the end of 1 Corinthians where he, where he cites this. But, and as I read that, the thought occurred to me, though our outer life is wasting away, I'm, I'm going to be 63 October 6th. I'm telling you, my outer life is wasting away. I can't do nearly what I used to be able to do uh, even 20 years ago. But Paul says our inner life is being renewed day by day. And so he's talking to believers telling them to hang in there, to be encouraged. And that is true, that if we are believers who are hanging in there and growing in our faith, then our inner self is being renewed day by day. But I don't think this is true for everyone who calls themselves Christian. I mean, I don't think that for many people who call themselves a believer, that their inner life is being renewed as it should be re being renewed. Is your inner life being renewed day by day? Are you fundamentally a different person as a Christian now than what you were even a year ago or five years ago? You know, the Billy Graham um, organization once reported that the average, the average age that a person came to, to faith in Christ was age 18. This was years and years and years ago. 
And I remember that when I read that statistic, I thought, wow, if you come to faith at age 18, then by the time, you know, say 40 or 50 years later, what kind of believer ought you to be? Because you've had the Holy Spirit living in you. Ostensibly, it's been a Christ-centered experience. So maybe you ought to be walking on water and healing people, huh? I don't know. I'm just saying that the stark contrast to that, and everybody here could probably bear witness to this, is that too many of us at the end of our life look just the same as we did at the beginning of our life when it, came to, when it comes to our faith. So the inner life is not being renewed as it should be renewed. And that gets in the way of this community or any community achieving and accomplishing for God what could be achieved and accomplished. I mean, that's just, that's just the reality. It's true in my life. And I think it's true in every Christian life. So what does it mean to calibrate? To calibrate means the process of checking a measuring instrument to see if it's accurate. When you go and get gas, the pump that pumps the gasoline from that, that uh, pump there, that pump has to be calibrated regularly so that you really are getting a gallon of gas. And if the pump is off, it has to be recalibrated so that it's exactly a gallon of gas that comes out of there so you are paying for what you are getting. When we recalibrate our life, we look at the standards that God has for us. And we ask ourselves the question, is my life being lived according to the standards that God has given to me? Is it better? Is it worse? And if it's not, then what do I need to change about me in order to meet that standard? Does this make sense to us all? So this has to be a regular kind of thing. So the recalibration then is the adjusting and or correcting a measuring instrument to let uh, to its required specifications. So if we are to be a measuring instrument for how other people see Christ, then if we're honest, we probably need to be recalibrated more often than what we are. So the question becomes is, do we have the right standards by which to live our life? And are those standards operating within the required parameters? It's kind of like a scientific way of putting it, but maybe you get what I'm saying. All of this caused me to think about how I live my life and the time that's involved when it comes to living our life. You know, when it comes to time, the Greeks have two words for time. One is chronos and the other is kairos. There can be a recalibration in chronos time. And in order to do that, it means that we have to be intentional. There's no recalibration without it. The gasoline pump just doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'm kind of out of whack here. I need to change the way in which I'm delivering this gasoline, so I'm going to fix myself. It doesn't do that. It has to be done intentionally. And we can't be better Christians unless we are intentional about how to be 
better Christians, more effective, more faithful. So that involves assessing our priorities. It involves evaluating our resources. Are we using them to the best possible ability? Are we gauging our outcomes and our performance as believers? Did we really do well in that conversation? Did we really give those people the amount of time? Did we give our best when we volunteered in that kind of a way? Are there other things that we could be doing? There's also a recalibration in Kairos time. The word Kairos means opportunity. So something happens, an event happens, and there's this opportunity in that event or circumstance. It can be planned or it can be spontaneous. Some of the examples of a Kairos opportunity is when you receive the news of your first child. You think, wow, there's some things that need to change about my life now that we're going to have children. Everyone who has had a child here knows exactly what I'm saying, right? You're going to have to re-divert your resources, your time. You're going to spend money on things you haven't spent your money on before. And so if you want to raise a healthy, well-adjusted, loving child that's loved, then it's a Kairos moment. There's an opportunity there for you to get those things in order before that event happens. Loss of a job and unexpected death are, can all be Kairos moments where you have to reevaluate, fix things, see what the opportunities there might be or need to be there. I'll give you an example. So in my little part-time job, one of the sons of the owners was there uh, this past week. His name is Zach. He's a really good guy. Hard worker, down to earth, has no entitlement about him at all. And uh, we have kind of struck up a friendship of sorts. So he and his father went to Germany for 10 days. And he was recently back from that journey. And when he saw me, uh, he, you know, he told me he'd been to Germany. He said, oh, by the way, he said, we went to see a lot of churches. Now, I don't know where he is in his faith or even if he has one. I suspect not. But because of the architecture and the beauty associated with the Gothic structures in Germany, that's always a place that a lot of people want to go and see. And they are spectacular. So, um, so we, ch we talked, we ch chatted about that a little bit, and then we, you know, both of us had to go do our work. And then this Thursday, I saw him again, and I had, I had some time to think about this, because after all, he's the one that opened up the subject about churches. He brought that up, which gave me a Kairos moment an opportunity. So I saw him and I said, by the way, I said, there are a couple other things. I said, when I used to teach this at Geneva, there are some other things about the church that you might find in Germany you might find to be interesting. So when they built churches in Germany, the whole of the structure was intended to teach 
the whole structure of the church itself was intended to teach biblical truths and things about Christ. So I said to him, did you know that almost all the churches were, were constructed north and south? So when you, the place that you would enter into was on the south. The furthest, uh, deepest part of the church where the altar might be would be in the north. And that, the, and that in the middle there was this, what's called a transept. And so that's where the arms went across. And the arms on the east would have stained glass that would be indicative of the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, things like that. And that the arm on the left, which faced the west, which is where the sun goes down, those were always stained glass windows that were indicative of judgment, of hell, and things like that. He said, that makes so much sense. And he pulled out his phone. He said, well, see here, I got, a, I got a picture of a church, of a window, where, you know, and it showed like Satan pulling somebody down into hell with him or something like that. I said, yeah. And he said, so not only that, but the, the long piece of the church was was modeled after the uh, Old Testament temple, Jewish temple. So you have in the nave, they call it a nave, like this would be called a nave right here, because the top, the ceiling there looks like the ribbing of a boat, navy, naval. So they call that the nave. And it said the nave would be commensurate to the outer court in the temple. And then the place where the sacrifices were made in the Old Testament temple where the blood was shed for the redemption of sins, that would be where the pulpit would be, where the priest or the pastor would share about the blood of Christ being shed for the redemption of our sins. And then the Holy of Holies, which could only be entered on the Day of Atonement once a year, like it was a big deal, it was the most sacred time in the Jewish festival uh, calendar, that would be that would that would align itself with where the altar is, where you just don't mess around. This is a sacred place. I basically told him the gospel because that was a Kairos moment. So God gives to us those kinds of things to use, not only God moments, but he also gives us opportunities and he gives us the ability to plan to be intentional for our Kronos moments. So the author of Hebrews says this, he says that he wants us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And that involves both Kairos and Kronos moments. We can't run with perseverance unless we plan about how we're going to run with perseverance. We can't run with perseverance unless we learn to use the events and circumstances in our lives as they come our way to use those as opportunities that God in his sovereignty and his planning brings to us. I would suspect that everyone in this room 
at least weekly, has a kairos moment, a God moment, that you have an opportunity to convey Christ in some sort of way that you would not have had otherwise. The question becomes, how do we sensitize our hearts to that so that we really see it for what it is? So that we look for it. Now, there is a biblical text, and, um, and I, I intentionally waited to get to this until a little bit later but, uh, because I wanted to kind of set up the whole series. But this biblical text many of you are familiar with, and I've spoken on this before, so, but I'm going to try and give it a, a different slant because I think that slant is there. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Again, you should all be very familiar with this, but I think this is a text that lends itself very well to what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, while he was in Ephesus. So Paul was living in Ephesus. He was hearing some things that was going on in the city of Corinth where he had lived for three years before. So while the Apostle Paul lived in Corinth, he saw, some certain, he saw certain things that were taking place, and he leverages what his experience in Corinth in that way. So, this is a letter that was written while Paul was in Ephesus to the Christians in Corinth. And this is what he says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So Paul was basically saying in an overarching sort of way that he wants all of us to run our life of faith as if there could only be one prize. That in one sense, we are almost, it's as if we are competing against each other to get that prize. He talks about how the runners have a very clear idea about where they're going. They don't run aimlessly. They know where they are going. It's very clear to them. This word strict in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That word strict is the Greek word agonom imzomhi, I think is how it's said. Uh, but the prefix of the word is means agony. So, the strength, the, the, so it's where we get the word agony from. Agonizomahi is the word. And so, um, and so we go into strict training. We, we condition ourselves in such a way that it, sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary in order to win the prize. 
And then in verse 27, no, I beat my body, I subject my body. I don't live according to the passions of my body, but I live according to the principles that God has for me. Now, when Paul was writing that in Ephesus, as I said to you before, he had lived in Corinth for three years. And during that time that he lived in Corinth, he would have seen something called the Pan-Hellenistic Games. And the Pan-Hellenistic Games were, um, uh, were, were, were done every two years. And during that time in Corinth, in fact, the Pan-Hellenistic Games were second only to the Olympic Games. They were that significant. And so Paul was writing to a community that really, really valued sports. Imagine that. And they identified themselves very much after these great athletes who came out of the city of Corinth and that were uh, competing in the city of Corinth during the Pan-Hellenistic Games. So as he was talking about that, and in particular talking about the runner athlete, he was appealing to something that I'm going to share with you that runs even deeper than that. In 490 B.C., Darius the Great uh, invaded Greece. He had 100,000 Persian soldiers, and General Metilidus had 20,000 Greek soldiers. 100,000, 20,000. A five-to-one advantage on the side of the Persians. It was, it was uh, Darius's intent to invade Athens, and he wanted to do it going over land. And so General Metilidus, with his 20,000 soldiers, was the only thing that was keeping the, Darius and his Persian soldiers from uh, landing, crossing land, and invading Athens' uh, landside. So... In order to try and def, uh, have the, the biggest possible army uh, he could get, there were a series of runners that were sent out to other Greek cities to recruit more soldiers, and the other Greek city-states refused to participate. So basically, those 20,000 soldiers were from the city of Athens. One of the runners was a guy named Phaedipidus. And Phaedipidus spent the week running back and forth to these different Greek city-states trying to get more soldiers. That's all we got. 20,000, the battle was joined, and at the end of the day, 6,400 Persians died to 192 Greeks. It was a monumental victory. And so the Persians retreated and decided to sail around the, the, the southern portion of Greece and invade Athens from the sea. But after the victory there uh, on that day, General Matilidas looked at Phaedipidus, who had run all week. He fought all day, and he said to Phaedipidus, now I want you to run to Athens and to tell them that we've been victorious, but they will probably come and attack from the sea. 
So in true Greek fashion, Phaedipidus stripped down to his birthday suit and he ran 25 miles to the city of Athens. And as he entered the city gates and ran down the main causewell, he ran up to the city fathers who were eagerly waiting to hear what news, had, what had happened, and he fell into their arms and he shouted, Nike! And then he died. That word Nike, you know as Nike. Nike named their shoe in honor of Phaedipidus. The battle, the plain on which that battle was fought, was near a city called Marathon. And the Marathon race was established in honor of Phaedipidus. And so when Paul was writing to the Christians in Corinth and talking about the runners, he knew they would not only be picturing the, uh, the current athletic runners, but they would be picturing Phaedipidus as well. And so Paul was saying, by extension, not only do I want you to run like the runners, the athletic runners that you have before you, I want you to run like Phaedipidus. I want you to run like Phaedipidus. Now, if Phaedipidus could do what he did for an earthly general and for earthly rewards, and if the Greek athlete could do what they do, agonidzomhahi, for what they did for earthly rewards, then the question becomes, is Jesus Christ worth more honor because he is an eternal king? He gives eternal rewards. Why is it that we can motivate ourselves for earthly people and earthly rewards, but we struggle with giving the honor to an eternal king, a heavenly king, and heavenly rewards. And that's the question the Apostle Paul is asking here. So I'm running out of time here, and I have much more, so I'll have to pick it up the next time I speak. But the question here. For all of us this morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, the question is, who am I running for? What is really the reward that I want? Who are the people or the persons that I'm really trying to honor? If eternity and temporality are in question. If what I do rings out through eternity, what do I want to do that will ring out through eternity? Or am I, or am I living my life for the here and now, for the short period of time that I live here on, our, on earth? Are we disciplining our bodies? Are we leveraging our resources? 
Are we adjusting and transforming our minds for the king of all of eternity and heaven itself? Where does our honor fall? So as you prepare, as we prepare our heart this morning, I'm asking everybody to ask that question. Now, I don't have time to get to it, but I do have this really important question that's in addition to this. And there are nine things, nine reasons why I think we have difficulty recalibrating our life. And I, what I want to do is link Phaedipidus to those nine things, but I don't have time this morning to do that. But I will when I speak again. And I, I think that you will find it to be very compelling. So let's prepare our hearts now.